the ninth line of logical evidence showing us that the Bible really did come from God is that science says so. But as always, don't take my word for it. Let's listen to God's. Isaiah 40, 12-22 Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord, or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom, then, will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. So how do we know that the Bible really did come from God? Well, apparently the ninth line of evidence is that science says so. What did we just see? God is not only all-powerful, and you don't want to mess with Him, (laughs) but it was He who created the earth, and notice what shape it's in. A circle, right? And this is important to know because the skeptic will usually say something like this when it, when it comes to science in the Bible. They'll say, well, all right, fine. Maybe the Bible doesn't have historical errors like we saw with archaeology. But we know it's got scientific errors because it contradicts science. Therefore, it couldn't have come from God because God can't lie. How many guys have heard that before? Yeah. Okay, it's out there. And then what they'll do is they'll go off and, and cite supposed proof that this scientific error in the Bible is that they say that the Bible says that the earth is flat. How many of you guys have heard that one? Okay, but, but what, they, what, what did we just read? No, it doesn't. <laughs> you just saw it. The Bible says it's what? It's round. Okay, we just, we just saw Isaiah says it's a circle. Now, the Roman Catholic Church may have taught it at one time that it was flat, but the Bible never did. Okay. But then they'll go on and they'll say, well, well, the Bible talks about the four corners of the earth. Isn't that saying it's flat? Isn't that the same thing? No. All the four corners of the earth is speaking about is the scope of the earth, not the shape of the earth. It just means to the ends of the earth. That's all it's saying. In fact, we use the same kind of verbiage today, and we don't call people liars for using it. For instance, every single day, I guarantee you, on the news, you'll hear uh, the weatherman say something like this, sunrise, sunset, right? But wait a second, according to science, the sun really doesn't rise or set. The earth is actually the one that revolves around the sun. The weatherman's a big old liar. He's full of contradictions. We can't trust him. We don't say that. We know he's just using the same common verbiage to speak about when the sun appears and disappears. That's it. It has nothing to do with lying, although it does <laughs> remind me uh, uh, of the classic saying, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, fool me 350,000 times, and you're probably a weatherman. <laughs> but, but seriously, the, the Bible may not be a scientific book per se. Okay, yes, it's not a scientific journal. Okay, it wasn't written for that, but it does not contradict known science, true science. Why? Because it came from God, and he doesn't lie. In fact, you'll be happy to know that not only does the Bible not contradict science, but that it's science who's catching up to what the Bible has been saying all along. Let me show you what I mean. The universe had a beginning, Genesis 1-1. Starting with the studies of Albert Einstein in the early 1900s and continuing today, science has confirmed the biblical view that the universe had a beginning. When the, when the Bible is written, most people believe the universe was eternal. Science has proven them wrong, but the Bible, correct. The universe is composed of time, space, matter, and energy. That's Genesis 1, 1 through 3. The first three verses of Genesis accurately express all known aspects of the creation. 
In Genesis chapter 1, we, we, we read, the, In the beginning time, God created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter. And then God said, let there be light, energy. No other creation account agrees with this scientific observable evidence. No new matter is being created. That's Genesis 2 too. This is called the first law of thermodynamics. It states that the total quantity of energy and matter in the universe is a constant. One, one form of energy or matter may be converted into another, but the total quantity always remains the same. Therefore, the creation is finished exactly as God said it was. The universe is running down. We see that Psalm 102, 25 through 27. This is called the second law of thermodynamics or entropy. This law states that everything in the universe is running down. It's deteriorating. It's constantly becoming less and less orderly. Entropy or disorder entered when mankind rebelled against God, resulting in the curse. And historically, most people believe the universe was unchangeable. Yet modern science verifies that the universe is, quote, growing old like a garment. That's Hebrews 1.11. Evolution directly contradicts this law. Life only comes from life. That's Genesis 1. This is called the law of biogenesis. And scientists observe that life only comes from existing life. This law has never been violated under observation or experimentation, as evolution imagines. Spontaneous generation, the uh, emergence of life from a non-living matter, that's never been observed. All observations shown that life only comes from life. The theory of evolution, again, conflicts with this scientific law. Vast number of stars. That's Jeremiah 33:22. At a time when less than 5,000 stars were visible to the human eye, God stated that the stars of heaven were innumerable. Not uh, until the 17th century did Galileo glimpse the immensity of our universe with his new telescope. Today, astronomers estimate that there are 10,000 billion trillion stars. That's a one followed by 25 zeros. Yet, as the Bible states, scientists admit this number may be woefully inadequate. Humans made from Earth. That's Genesis 2-7. Scientists have now discovered that the human body is comprised of some 28 base and trace elements, all of which are found in the Earth. The hydrologic cycle. That's Ecclesiastes 1, verse 7. 4,000 years ago, the Bible declared that God, quote, draws up drops of water, which distill as rain from the mist, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. Job 36, 27 through 28. The ancients observed mighty rivers flowing into the ocean, but they could not conceive why the sea level never rose. Though they observed rainfall, they had only quaint theories as to its origin. Meteorologists now understand that the hydrologic cycle consists of evaporation, atmospheric transportation, distillation, and precipitation. Jet stream circulation. Ecclesiastes 1.6. At, at, at one time when it was thought that the, the, the winds, they blew straight. But the Bible declares the wind goes towards the south, then turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. King Solomon wrote that about 3,000 years ago. Yet it was not until World War II that airmen discovered the jet stream circuit. Air has weight. That's Job 28:25. It was once thought that air was weightless. Yet 4,000 years ago, Job declared that God established a weight for the wind. In recent years, meteorologists have calculated that the average thunderstorm holds thousands of tons of rain. To carry this load, air must have mass. The earth hangs in space. We see that Job 26, verse 7. While other sources declared the earth sat on the back of an elephant or a turtle or was held up by Atlas, the Bible alone states what we now know to be true. He hangs the earth on nothing. Oceans contain springs. That's Job 38:16. The ocean obviously is very deep and almost all the ocean floor is in total darkness and the, the pressure there is enormous. I mean, it would have been impossible for Job to have explored the springs of the sea. Until recently, it was thought that the oceans were fed only by rivers and rain. Yet in the 1970s, with the help of deep-sea diving research submarines, oceanographers discovered, that's right, springs on the ocean floor. There's mountains on the bottom of the ocean floor as well. And that's Jonah chapter 2, verse 5-6. through six. Only in the last century have we discovered that there are towering mountains and deep trenches in the depths of the sea. The sea has paths and channels. That's Psalm 8.8. 3,000 years ago, the Bible declared that the paths of the seas. 
Well, in the 19th century, Matthew Morey, the father of oceanography, after reading Psalm 8, he researched and discovered ocean currents that follow specific paths through the seas. Utilizing Morey's data, marine navigators have since reduced by many days the time required to traverse the seas. Life is in the blood. That's Leviticus 17.11. Up until 120 years ago, sick people were bled, and many people died as a result, including George Washington. Today, we know that healthy blood is necessary to bring life-giving nutrients to every cell of the body. God declared that the life of the flesh is in the blood, long before science understood its function. Sexual promiscuity is dangerous to your health. Hey, that's 1 Corinthians 6.18. The Bible warns that he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Much data now confirms that any sexual relationship outside of holy matrimony is indeed unsafe. Disease can spread by physical contact and the need for medical quarantines. Well, that's Leviticus chapter 13. Long before man understood the principles of quarantine, God commanded the Israelites to isolate those with a contagious disease until cured. When dealing with disease, clothes and and the body should be washed under running water. Well, that's Leviticus 15.13. For centuries, people uh, naively washed in standing water. Today, we recognize the need to wash away germs with fresh water. Sanitation. That's Deuteronomy 23.12-13. Some 3,500 years ago, God commanded His people to have a place outside the camp where they could relieve themselves and bury their waste. Up until World War I, more soldiers died from disease than war because they did not isolate human waste. Atomic fission. That's 2 Peter 3, verse 10 through 12. Scripture states that the elements will melt with fervent heat when the earth and the heavens are dissolved by fire. Today we understand that if the elements of the atom were loosed, there would be an enormous release of heat and energy, i.e. radiation. Light can be divided. That's Job 38, 24. Sir Isaac Newton studied the light and discovered that white light is made of seven colors, which can be parted and then recombine. Science confirmed this four centuries ago, yet God declared it four millennia ago. Light travels in a path. That's Job 38, 19. Light is said to have a way, and uh, the Hebrew direct, literally, a traveled path or a road. Well, until the 17th century, it was believed that light was transmitted instantaneously. Well, we now know that light is a form of energy that travels at 186,000 miles per second in a straight line. Indeed, there is a way of light. Creation is made of invisible particles or atoms. Well, that's Hebrews 11.3. Not until the 19th century was it discovered that all visible matter consists of these invisible elements. Vast fossil deposits in the earth. Well, that's Genesis 7. When plants and animals die, they decompose rapidly. Yet billions of life forms around the globe have been preserved as fossils. Geologists now know that fossils only form if there's rapid deposition of life buried away from scavengers and bacteria. This agrees exactly with what the Bible says occurred during the global flood. God has created mankind all from one blood. Well, that's Acts 17.26. Today, researchers have discovered that we have all descended from one gene pool. For example, a 1995 study of a section of Y chromosome from 38 men from different ethnic groups around the world was consistent with the biblical teaching that we all come from one man, i.e. Adam. Genetic mixing of different seeds forbidden. We see that Leviticus 19.19. The Bible warns against mixing seeds as this will result in an inferior or dangerous crop. Well, guess what? There's now growing evidence that unnatural, genetically modified engineered crops may indeed be harmful. Pest control. That's Leviticus 25. Farmers are plagued today with insects, yet God gave a surefire remedy to control these pests centuries ago. Moses commanded Israel to set aside one year in seven when no crops were raised. Insects winter in the stalks of the last year's harvest. They hatch in the spring and are perpetuated by laying eggs in the new crop. Well, if the crop is denied one year in seven, guess what? The pests have nothing to subsist on, and thereby they're controlled. God has given us the leaves of the trees as medicine. Ezekiel 47, 12. Ancient cultures utilized many herbal remedies, and today modern medicine has rediscovered what the Bible has said all along. There's healing compounds found in plants. Olive oil and wine 
is useful on wounds. That's Luke 10, verse 34. Jesus told of a Samaritan man who, when he came upon a wounded traveler, he bandaged him, pouring upon his wounds olive oil and wine. Well, today we now know that wine contains ethyl alcohol and traces of of methyl alcohol. Both are good disinfectants. And olive oil is also a good disinfectant, as well as a skin moisturizer, protector, and soothing lotion. This is a, it's common knowledge today. However, did you know that during the Middle Ages and right up until the early 20th century, millions died because they didn't know how to treat and protect open wounds? Laughter. It promotes physical healing. That's Proverbs 17, 22. Recent studies confirm what King Solomon was inspired to write some 3,000 years ago. Quote, a merry heart does good like medicine. And it's now known that laughter reduces levels of certain stress hormones, which helps bring balance to our immune system, and this helps our body fight off disease. Now, how many of you would say the Bible not only does not contradict science, but it's science that's actually catching up to what the Bible has been saying the whole time? And yet, this is another thing the skeptics do. They not only ignore the evidence, but they act like uh, being a Christian and a scientist doesn't mix. They act like only intellectually enough people become Christians. You can never understand true science like us. Really? Well, what they don't tell you is that many of the first and greatest scientists of all times were Christians. Men such as Johannes Kepler, Blaise Pascal, Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, Michael Faraday, William Thompson, Kelvin, and even Albert Einstein believed in the existence of a god. I want to know how God created this world. I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. The rest are details. And he was fond of two sayings. One, God does not play with dice. And two, science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. In other words, they can coexist. They can work together. Why? Because God doesn't lie, and He doesn't contradict accurate, true science. In fact, neither do the skeptics tell you uh, that what they do to people who disagree with their faulty science. Let's take a look at that. Roger DeHart, he's a science teacher at Burlington Edison High School near Seattle, Washington. He was told he could not inform students of errors in the textbooks by passing out articles from current science journals. Then there was Kevin Haley, a biology teacher at Oregon Community College. He lost his job for exposing errors in the textbook. William Dembski, he was fired by Baylor University because he advocated intelligent design. Then there was Forrest Mims. He was a a science writer for 20 years. He, He published in National Geographic, Science Digest, the American Journal of Physics, and 60 magazines and newspapers. He was denied a job, though, as a writer for Scientific American because simply he was a creationist. And Rod Levesque of Fairbault, Minnesota. He was a biology teacher who was reassigned simply because he doubted Darwin's theory. And then Dean Kenyon, he was a a tenured professor at the San Francisco State University. He wrote books for years about how wonderful evolution was. But then one day, he got converted and they fired him. But but he said, you can't fire me because I've I've got 20 years. So they said, okay, and they put him in as a lab assistant washing test tubes, uh, and then he had to go through a whole big lawsuit just to get his job back simply because he doubted Darwin's theory. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound very scientific to me of those guys, right? I mean, I mean, you can't even discuss an alternative uh, view without getting fired, even when science is saying you need to? Uh, I mean, what are you trying to hide? Who's the one being ignorant and biased and closed-minded now? But you might be thinking, well, okay, maybe those scientists aren't very open-minded, but, you know, that's not good science. But, but, but I know of something that the Bible gets wrong concerning science. Earlier you talked about how the, the people in the Bible lived 900 years old. That's ridiculous. I mean, how can you call that scientific? Well, maybe you just need to keep reading your Bible and trust God. Because we know even today that, yes, it's scientifically possible for people to live that long. Let me show you what I mean. Genesis 1, 6-8 And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. 
According to the Bible, when God created the sky or the atmosphere, He did so by placing an expanse between the waters that were on the earth from the waters that were in the upper atmosphere. And it's in this text that gives us a clue about the pre-flood conditions of the world and how there was a canopy of water that surrounded the earth's upper atmosphere. Now, here's the point. This would not only explain why there was so much water from above when it rained and why animals and all of life got large, but it also explains why and how people could live for, yes, even for a thousand years. What most people don't realize is that a water canopy surrounding the Earth's upper atmosphere would have provided the perfect conditions for people to live such long lifespans, and this is because they would have been protected from the harmful radiation that beats down on us from the sun and shortens our lifespans. You see, the sun not only emits light, but it also emits harmful radiation in the form of x-rays and ultraviolet rays and gamma rays, etc., okay? Just like you go into a, a doctor's office. Unless you think this isn't harmful, this is why they proceed to give you a lead-lined vest and then the doctors proceed to run out of the room. X-rays might work great to see inside of you, but prolonged exposure could mean the death of you. And this is what's going on every single day with the sun. Even though we may not see it, we're literally being rayed to death. Our bodies put up a good fight, and daily they make repairs, our bodies do, but pretty soon they, our bodies and our skin, they, they just can't hold up. And so that's when we start to wrinkle up and we shrivel up, we, we break down and eventually die. But here's the point. A water canopy in the pre-flood atmosphere would have prevented this. And this is because lead and concrete are not the only things that shield us from radiation. So does water. Therefore, prior to the flood, the harmful effects caused by the sun's radiation would have been shielded out and health and life expectancy of people would have gone way up. And this also explains why when the water canopy did come down at the time of the flood, that the lifespans of people also came down with it. If you look at the age of the people right after the flood, you'll notice that the lifespans immediately drop from around 900 to 400 and then down to 200 and then finally about 100, which is what we have today. But before the flood, hey, you were just a kid at 100 years old. And we not only see evidence of long lifespans and the protection provided by the pre-flood atmosphere, but we also see modern examples of people being protected from the sun and thus living longer lifespans. For instance, studies have shown that there is a noticeable longevity of people who live in steep canyons and valleys that provide a uh, natural shield from the harmful effects of the sun. And then there's the a considerable jump in longevity from 1911 to 1951 when automation in transportation and production moved people indoors away from the sun. And finally, there's the example of longevity of what happened to the Dickerson children. These children were actually secreted away in an attic until they were teenagers. And pictures of Connie and Gordon and Glenda Dickerson, ages 18, 15, and 13, looks like they had literally stopped aging. All the children were still quite healthy and intelligent, but it's obvious that the time they spent shielded away from the sun had an amazing anti-aging effect upon them. In fact, one man, he decided to take it a step further and duplicate the pre-flood atmosphere and subjected various animals to it, which of course produced some amazing results. And so promising were his results that even NASA requested his research to see if they could utilize it for the space program. And in one of their experiments they did involving three scientists living on the ocean floor in a biosphere, they stayed in there for about one to three months, and quote, when they left, they were all middle-aged with grain hair, low libidos and stuff, And but when they returned, their hair was clear of the gray, the wrinkles had started to disappear, and their sex drives was so increased, I kid you not, the report says that their wives actually complained about it to NASA. It turns out there were certain glands and organs that were reactivated and blood tests showed an unusual level of hormones that are normally associated with the growth in young children. It was further speculated what would happen if they took this knowledge and built a room with this kind of atmosphere and slept in it for eight hours a day. I kid you not, the report said from NASA, quote, for every day spent in there, one year would be added to your life until you maxed out at about 1,000 years. Folks, it's exactly what we're talking about here. It's actually science who's catching up to what the Bible's been saying all along.
And this is why you can't have it both ways. You can't agree with some of the Bible's teaching and then turn around and deny its authenticity. Why? Because the Bible not only does not contradict science, but it's even it shares scientific data long before so-called modern science has even figured it out. And it proves it to be the genuine Word of God. Anything short of this is called hypocrisy. The tenth line of logical evidence showing us that the Bible really did come from God is that statistics say so. 1 Peter 1, 23-25 For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all men like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. And this is that word that was preached to you. So how do we know the Bible really did come from God? Well, what did we just see? God's word, the Bible, is going to stand forever. Why? Because statistically, uh, even though one for one, men will come and men will go, just like the flowers of the field, God's word is never going to pass away. Why? Because it came from God and no power on hell or earth can ever take it away. It's not going nowhere, folks. It's going to stand forever. And this point is really driven home when you take a look at the amazing statistics concerning the Bible. It proves again that it came from God and there's no way man could ever whoop it up, let alone try to destroy it. Let's take a look at the amazing characteristics of the Bible. It was written over a 1,500 year time span. It was written over 40 different generations. It was written by more than 40 different authors from, from every walk of life, including kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars, etc. Uh, Moses, again, example, he, he was a political leader trained in the universities of Egypt. Peter, he was a fisherman. Amos, he was a herdsman. Joshua, a military general. Nehemiah, he was a cupbearer. Daniel, a prime minister. Luke, a doctor. Solomon, a king, Matthew, a tax collector, and Paul, a rabbi. It was written in different places. Moses was in the wilderness. Jeremiah, he was in a dungeon. Daniel was on a hillside and in a palace. Paul, inside prison walls. Luke, while he was traveling. John was on uh, the Isle of Patmos and others in the rigor of military campaign. It was written at different times. David wrote about it in times of war. Solomon wrote in times of peace. Uh, It was written during different moods. Some, some wrote at the heights of joy. Others were writing from the depths of sorrow and despair. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, a portion of Aramaic, and Greek. And it never once contradicts itself, and it has the same message through and through. And as we saw before, this proves man can never whoop this up. But, but that's still just the tip of the iceberg. Now add to this fact the incredible scope of the various topics that the Bible covers from law, marriage, government, life, death, heaven, hell, etc. It's not just a one-track story. It deals with all kinds of things. It even utilizes various literary types such as poetry or history or biography, diaries, parables, allegories, etc. And even with all this, it still holds on to its unity and it never contradicts itself. In fact, from beginning To the end, it has the exact same message. Man could never do this. Let's take a look. What what are the odds of this? Genesis is the book of beginnings. Revelation, the book of the end. Genesis, the earth was created. Revelation, the earth passes away. Genesis, Satan's first rebellion. Revelation, Satan's final rebellion. Genesis, the sun governs the day. Revelation, there's no need of a sun. Genesis, darkness is called night. Revelation, there's no night there. Genesis, the entrance of sin. Revelation, the end of sin. Genesis, curse pronounced. Revelation, no more curse. Genesis, death entered. Revelation, no more death. Genesis, man driven out of Eden. Revelation, man is restored. Genesis, the tree of life is guarded. Revelation, access to the tree of life. Genesis, sorrow and suffering enter. Revelation, no more sorrow. Genesis, marriage of the first Adam. Revelation, marriage of the last Adam. Genesis, man's dominion ended and Satan's began. Revelation, Satan's dominion ceased and man's restored. Genesis, the doom of Satan pronounced. Revelation, the doom of Satan executed. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of what's going on with the parallels between Genesis and Revelation. And here's the point. 
There's about a 1,500-year time span between the writing of Genesis by Moses and the writing of Revelation by the Apostle John, which means they obviously didn't know each other, so they couldn't collaborate, and yet (laughs) they both blend perfectly together in unity and harmony, telling the same story 1,500 years later. Hey, folks, that can't happen by chance. There's no way. Only God could do something like that. But that's still not all. The Bible alone is unique in its circulation. No other book in history has had such a circulation as the Bible. In fact, each year there are so many Bibles sold that it consistently tops the New York Times bestseller list, but it's left off due to the fact that it would always be listed as the number one bestseller. The Bible has been read by more people and published in more languages than any other book in history. Absolutely no other book even begins to compare to that of the Bible. And yet, the Bible has also survived attack after attack by people seeking its destruction, like these guys say. No other book has been so chopped, knifed, sifted, scrutinized, and vilified. What book on philosophy or religion or psychology has been subject of such mass attack as the Bible with such venom and skepticism upon every chapter, every line, and every tenet? Yet the Bible is still loved by millions, read by millions, and studied by millions. Infidels for 1,800 years have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it still stands today solid as a rock. Its circulation increases more and more, and it's even more loved and cherished and read than ever before. If the book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes and kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They all die, and yet the Bible still lives. In other words, it's going to stand forever, just like God said it would. In fact, the big skeptic Voltaire, he learned this the hard way. Voltaire, the French infidel who died in 1778, said that in a hundred years from his time, Christianity would be swept from existence and passed into history. But what happened? Voltaire passed into history while the circulation of the Bible continues to increase in almost all parts of the world. And concerning the boast of Voltaire on the extinction of Christianity and the Bible in a hundred years... Only 50 years after Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society used his press and his house to produce stacks of Bibles. But that's still not all. The Bible alone has the ability to transform a life no matter what somebody's done, no matter how far they've gone off the deep end. The Bible alone can transform a life. You don't get these effects with with secular psychology or or self-help seminars or man's wisdom or religion or even your own ingenuity. The Bible alone can set you free like it did for this guy. Check this out. 68, 69, 70, 71, those were years I was in the military. I was in northern Thailand um, up close to the border of Laos and Cambodia, kind of in the boonies. In, um, in a listening station there and, um, and had gone through some real uh, traumatic uh, changes. There was also this breaking inside. I just checked out. There really was no redeeming piece of evidence. There was no way that the human existence could be justified. I made the conclusion, stepped over the little picket fence into Nana Land that night. Embarrassed, totally humiliated that I was a human being because of all I'd been, all I'd seen human beings do, all I'd been a participator in. Of course, when, when you throw off any kind of responsibility of being a human being, then then you have no uh, restraint. And so uh, when you do that, they, they pretty soon they come in the white jackets and take you away, you know. And so they came in the white jackets and of course they had to put clothes on me and everything because that, you know, there's no restraint there either. No reason to wear clothes if you're not a human being. Um, but they took me to the hospital in Munich um, to the mental ward and did all of their tests and their their diagnosis was 
actually no hope. And they decided the psychosis was too deep because I'd seen death close to me, people I loved, people I cared for. In fact, I had to care for their bodies, things like that in Northern Thailand. And, and they found that it was really based in this traumatic turn that that had made in my thinking. And um, that I would never recover. Jesus said, Terry, I know how you feel. You know, I've, I've seen everything human beings have ever done. But I want you to understand the difference in our response to that. You've, uh, you've decided not to be a human being. And I decided to become one. And then he, he took my emptied out shell and flooded me, drowned me in how he feels toward human beings. It crushed me, it drowned me, it... And I figure it's probably just a glimpse of how he feels toward human beings, but it was enough to almost kill me just from, from his passion toward us as his prized creation, his family, his children. But needless to say, that day they issued a new diagnosis. Um, and where it had said no hope before, it said recovering satisfactorily. Only God can do something like that. Why? Because the Bible really did come from Him, and it has the power to transform anyone, no matter what they've done. Freud can't do that. Hemingway can't do that. Nothing on earth can do that. Man can't do that. But God can, and it's in the Bible. And this is why you can't have it both ways. You can't agree with some of the Bible's teaching and then, and then turn around and deny its authenticity. Why? Because the incredible nature and scope and statistics and power of the Bible clearly presents it as the genuine Word of God. And anything short of this is called hypocrisy. And so it is with the skeptics of the Bible. They spout off bold claims that the Bible cannot be trusted. It's a, it's a book full of errors. It's whooped up by man. Yet it is they who refuse to look at the evidence. But one last time, be encouraged today. You don't have to give in to the attacks of the skeptic. You don't have to give in to doubt. You don't have to give in to one iota of criticism. What we hold in our hands is the genuine Word of God. And that's why more than ever, one last time, we've got to wake up and realize the golden opportunity that God's given to us. Our world is in a frantic search for purpose and direction and meaning to life. They realize the world is messed up and it's getting worse. And they're full of questions like, why do I exist? Where did I come from? Is there life after death? And, and is there any hope? And it's high time that we, the church, get busy not just saying the Bible came from God, but showing the world that it did come from God. How? By showing them what we've just learned, that the Bible really has the the life-changing power necessary to not only answer their questions, but to give them hope and transform their lives just like He's done with us. They need to see in us God's amazing grace in action. They need to see our lives transformed. We're the only Bible that some people will ever see. And what do they see? Hypocrisy or the good news that no matter what you've done, whether you were an occultist like me or a slave trader like John Newton, God's amazing grace is real, and He really can put a new song in your heart like He did for this man. How many of you like Negro spirituals? An old black lady down south showed me something about the Negro spirituals, and I want to share it with you. Uh, you know, the black folk down south had more sense by accident than some of us have on purpose, you know what I mean? You didn't hear what I said. I heard an old black lady say, Son, if the mountain was smooth, you couldn't climb it. Uh-huh. Think about that for a minute. But did you know, she said to me, did you know all, just about all Negro spirituals are written on the black notes of the piano? <laughs> this is absolutely true. You can go home tonight and play almost any Negro spiritual, just play the black notes on the piano. You look skeptical. Now, you can't see it out there, but I want you to watch. Watch. There are five black notes on the piano. And those same five black notes just keep recurring. And you can go home tonight and play almost any Negro spiritual. Just play the black notes. Watch. Watch. 
you know that every time I feel the spirit just black notes watch this That's because the slaves didn't come to America with do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. That's somebody else's scale, okay? All they had in their musical scale were those five black notes. We know it in music as the pentatonic scale. And they built the power and pathos of the Negro spiritual on five notes. When you study music, you also come across what are known as white spirituals. Did you know that? And they are white composers who work with those that scale in early America they used to call this the slave scale and I'm gonna play for you what some musicologists think is the most famous white spiritual built on the slave scale or just the black notes Anybody tonight know who wrote that song? I heard it, a man by the name of John Newton. But do you know what John Newton did before he became a Christian? He was the captain of a slave ship. And many believe heard this melody that sounds very much like a West African sorrow chant. And wrote the words, Amazing Grace, and set his words to a slave melody. I looked up that song. I believe God wanted that song written just the way it was written, just so that we would be reminded that as Christians, whether black or white, free or bond, in his eyes, we're all connected. We are connected. And we are connected by God's amazing grace. Connected by God's amazing grace. Woo! I looked up that song in the Library of Congress. I looked up, I went to the Library of Congress, I looked up that song, and wherever you see it authentically printed, you know what it says? Words, John Newton, melody unknown. Tell the Lord, when I get to heaven, I want to meet Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but boy, I want to meet that slave called unknown. And I, and I, I, I recorded that song the way I hear it when I sing it. I still hear the sounds of the slave ships in the water. I want to sing it for you the way John Newton probably first heard it coming up out of the belly of the ship. Listen.
Hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying. Okay. How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something. Right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even His name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ... Uh, it has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what do we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm a I'm a liar. I'm a thief, I'm a blasphemer, I'm an adulterer, I'm a murderer. And the scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step. To admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven, I need a Savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. 
That, that's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against Him and disqualified us, that disqualified us for heaven, right? And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, for instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court, the gavel's been passed, the judges said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty, uh, you even admit you're guilty, and uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty. And did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor, can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know it's actually on historical record that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty, and they've refused to take it. And so even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what He was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you could be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave and the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.